0: This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Happy Eastertide. We have entered into a bit of a dogwood winter here in the bluegrass, which I'm not complaining too much about since this time of year with the blooms of red buds and dogwoods is probably my favorite visual season. I just can't get enough of the cloud-like dogwoods everywhere. Have you watched my videos at the Cultural Debris Patreon? They are viewable by anyone and usually touch on some sort of topic that fits with the podcast, perhaps something I've mentioned here or an item I might think would be of interest to you. Even better, they're short, so the commitment is small. And while you're there, take a look around and consider supporting the podcast. Your commitment there can be small as well, but greatly appreciated. Visit patreon.com slash cultural debris or find the link in show notes. The winner of the Patreon book giveaway was Thomas P., but he already had a copy, so Cecilia N. gets the free copy of Holly Ordway's Tolkien's Modern Readings. If you've not listened to the episode with Dr. Ordway, it's well worth your time, as is the book itself, and look for more giveaways associated with the Patreon soon. If you could take a moment to leave a five-star rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts, it helps other like-minded folks find cultural debris. One of the bits of cultural debris that came my way recently is the most interesting book I've come across in a while. I was searching for a copy of Roy Campbell's translation of the Poems of St. John of the Cross, the trade edition was published in London by Harville in 1951 and had an introduction by Father Martin Darcy, who was an author of various other books, too. My search turned up the surprise of a limited letterpress edition that specifically says in the colophon that no copies were for sale. Fewer than 150 copies of that letterpress edition were printed at all. As I researched this rare oddity, I came across a story that included a trip to Tibet, the Sons of Teddy Roosevelt, the Dalai Lama, and Albert Einstein. I'm definitely doing a Patreon video about this. I just have to figure out how much to include. So keep an eye open for that. The poem this episode is from Wendell Berry and his early collection of poems titled Openings. This is April Woods Morning. Birth of color out of night in the ground. Luminous the gatherings of bloodroot, newly risen, green leaf, white flower in the sun, the dark grown absent. My guest is Canadian menswear writer and broadcaster Pedro Mendez, who operates the website The Hogtown Rake. I have followed Pedro for years on Instagram and also very much enjoyed his podcast series Unbuttoned with Bruce Boyer, about which we also talk about in this episode. Pedro has an appreciation for classic men's clothing that I share, and in this episode we discuss his new book, Ten Garments Every Man Should Own, A Practical Guide to Building a Permanent Wardrobe. Is there a place for classic clothing in a locked-down Zoom world? Please join us and find out. Pedro Mendez, welcome to Cultural Debris.
1: Thank you, Alan. Great to be here.
0: I appreciate you being on. You are our very first guest from the uh, the great white north of Canada, and uh, so I, I appreciate you uh, bringing in a northerly uh, perspective to the podcast.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I mean, uh, I don't know how northerly it'll be, but uh, but we. Do, I'll tell you the truth, uh, Canadians. Most Canadians, we think of ourselves as quite different from Americans. Um, I don't think we realize how similar we are. Um, but I'll do my best to offer you know something different <laughs> to,
0: to get to give that to give that different take. Exactly. So how how are things up there? Uh, you know everything's been locked down and, and we hear some horror stories about uh, about how things are going in Canada with lockdowns and so forth. how How have you survived all of this?
1: Um, well, it's you know a constant um, a constant roller coaster of anxiety. and um, you know the it's the hope that gets you. Because um, certainly at the turn of the year, I felt a lot of hope with the arrival of the vaccines, and then, you know, the reality sunk in of how long it's going to take. And you know, and then spring started to come and started to feel like some things were going to get better, and then the variants kicked in. And um, you know, the feeling here definitely uh, right now is that, that things are being mismanaged, and it doesn't need to be as bad as it is. Um, but, you know, it's really just hunker down for a couple more months. And then hopefully we can start to see, you know, successes that are happening in other parts of the world. Um, and apparently there's something going on in Canada called um, vaccine envy as we look south of the border
0: and see how <laughs> I much, saw an article about that yeah, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it is it's it is a real thing because, you know, most of my American friends have at least had a shot. And, right. uh, and you know, I haven't, my family, you know, my, my parents have. But uh, people of my age haven't, and but I understand too. Like you know, you guys make the vaccines; we don't. Um, you know, we're 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 doing well uh, compared to to many other countries. So I'm not that, I'm not going to complain about that. Um, but you know, it's it's yeah, it 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 just it just wears you down. The, the sort of constant constant roller coaster of uh, of uh, of nerves.
0: Well, I, yeah, I think um, sort of mismanagement why why are they doing this is the is the uh, the question of the day almost everywhere but we yeah. we do have uh examples of uh, of israel and and surprisingly the uk uh yes. kind of kind of jumping on this with both feet so that's good and and i have uh, i've actually been pretty impressed uh especially lately here uh with how how well things mm-hmm. are going so yeah um i th- i think that the um I think that the supply is is going to keep uh, exponentially mm-hmm. increasing. And so once yeah. that kind of hits in, I think uh, I think you all will be all right, but but hang in there, you were very <laughs> productive over the pandemic because you wrote a book, so um, well, you know, that's 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 something to be pretty proud of, I think
1: Thank you. Thank you. you know I, I mean the 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 funny thing is, is I actually wrote the book before the pandemic. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was completed, um, it was completed in the fall of 2019 and it was supposed to be published in the spring of 2020 and then, you know, and then the pandemic happened and my publisher shut down for a little while and they pushed it to this, this past, um, um, sorry, sorry. I got the dates wrong. No, no, no. It was supposed to be published in October of 2020. Um, and then it got pushed into this spring of 2021. And, um, you know, so I had all these big plans, like most of us did for 2020 and all the things I was going to do. So for, for quite some months there, nothing happened with the book. You know, the manuscript was finished. It was ready. Um, the, we hadn't really started the design process and that sort of thing. And, uh, but you know, the editing was, was done and it just kind of sat there. But what's interesting is when I returned to the book again, uh, when we started ramping up to publishing it, I realized that so much of what I think what I had written before the pandemic felt more relevant now. Um, like, I'll be honest with you that that as I was working on it, I was very aware that for many people, they could care less about clothes. You know what I mean? They could care less where it's made, how it's made, um, in terms of classic, um, they want stuff that's cheap and they want stuff that's popular, right? And, you know, I felt I was writing this book for the small group of people who would be, who would be interested and passionate about it. But then, you know, interesting things happened, have happened in the last year where, where I've heard more and more conversations of people saying, sort of reassessing their values around, you know, most things in their lives, but including clothes. And the stories that have been going on for, for decades about the problems in the clothing industry really seem to be getting a lot of attention and traction sort of like, I guess, sort of like food in the 80s and 90s when people started questioning, you know, chemicals and, and where stuff was being grown and so on and how. So then, you know, I looked at my book and I was like, oh, actually, maybe more people will be interested. And so far, um, so far that has been the reaction. You know, even people who aren't necessarily interested in classic menswear are pulling out, you know, lessons and guidance from the book that, um, that I realize now are applicable to pretty much anybody, uh, no matter how they dress.
0: Well, I, I definitely want to talk about that. I, I, um, I did wonder though, I mean, you know, you're, you have the, so you have the manuscript done, then everybody gets locked down and, and we have this transition to zoom world where, uh, everybody's wearing, you know, Mm. elastic waistbands Yeah, and, and, uh, sort of loungewear around the house. So it is, is a book about tailored clothing something that that people are going to relate to? Is it, or do people, has the pandemic killed tailored clothing, I guess is the question.
1: Well, um, I mean, the first question in terms of, of the relation of people relating to it, um, you know, the focus of the book is really about how to identify quality when buying clothing and, you know, even though a couple of the garments, you know, I'm talking about suits and sport jackets, that's a very specific style. You know, the chapter's about sweaters, about socks, (laughs) um, about gloves. Most people wear those and, you know, that isn't specific to one style or approach of dress and the lessons that come out of it, again, a, a friend of mine who bought the book to support me, but doesn't wear, you know, does not wear tailored clothes. He's reassessing his wardrobe, even buying jeans. He's asking himself, well, wait a second, you know, where can I find actually good quality jeans and what does that look like? And, you know, he even said, you know, he's not, you know, a formal person at all, but he realizes now the logic of getting, you know, a good quality blue shirt that he can just wear all the time and, um, that fits really well, you know, and, and, and suits him. So that's kind of, I, I kind of feel like, um, to use one of Bruce Boyer's lines, it's, it's uh, you know, it's a, a sheep and wolf's clothing uh, that it, you know, it looks like it's a book about tailored clothes, but actually it, it isn't. Um, in terms of what's going to happen, you know, everyone's asking this question in terms of what's going to happen to clothes and especially tailored clothes. Um, I think it's going to be more of the same that we had before the pandemic. It's just accelerated. So, you know, more attempts to dress casually and you know uh I don't think there's going to be a, a, ma- a major return to classic style like there was you know 10 12 years ago um but I don't think it's going to go away primarily because there's no other option right you know the right as, as you were kn- to go if you y- yeah yeah as you know well over the last couple hundred years there's always been an evolution in in clothing you know and and you know, the frock coat giving way to the lounge suit or, you know, white tie giving way to black tie. Like there was always something. But now if people feel a sense of occasion and they want to, to dress, dress up for it, um, what else can you do except, you know, except a tailored jacket and a nice pair of trousers? Now I'm not saying it has to be that way or, and there can't be something else but um that's why i feel that it it is going to it is going to keep going for a little while because there's just nothing else there that's that's replacing it
0: no i think that's right uh people may wear things less but there's always i think a need for as you say sort of occasion wear there there are times when e- even the most casual need to need to separate a special event or a special occasion, uh, from just, you know, la- just complete lounge wear. And of course, you know, as, as we know, the, the suit, the suit that we know of as a, as a very formal thing was really a, a lounge suit. Right. Right. Um, but, uh, we, <clears throat> we've moved a lot further on lounge wear than that, but, uh, still, <laughs> you you kind of need something there. And, with with your concept here and of course the the book is 10 garments every man should own and and that that doesn't mean i discovered that you open your closet and there are only 10 things hanging there right. but um but these are these are items you need and maybe you just have one of them oh but exactly your argument is you need a good one
1: exactly exactly i you know you know do i yeah do i think that, that- everybody, every man should be, you know, wearing suits every day. Well, of course not. Um, it's not, it's not the world we live in, but you know, I think it is, um, kind of depressing to have a special event and to see people wearing exactly what they would wear, you know, when they go to the mall, it doesn't add to the specialness of the event and we do it with everything else. You know, many people don't host a wedding, um, in their backyard uh, as they would a barbecue with absolutely, you know, no effort put into decoration or to food or to music or whatever. We make those efforts. Why do we make them? To signify that it's a special event. And I know clothes is layered with much more, you know, meaning and, and, you know, political and historical power and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, should you have then one good suit? Well, yes, you, you should have, you know, one good suit that fits you well that you can wear when those special occasions come up. And then and then various levels of formality um, below that. I think kind of one of the, the things that I've realized, the stumbling block in North America, and this is true for, I think, Canada and the United States, is that there's this prevalent idea that either you dress extremely casually or extremely formally. Do you know what I mean? Like right, it, yes. it's either pajamas or a tuxedo. And, you know, it, it's, I hope what can start to happen, an expansion of that, because, you know, it is what you see mostly in, in Europe, in Asia, um, which is that you can have clothing that is sharp and um, a little bit dressy, but very casual in another way, comfortable, softly structured, combined in a certain way. Like the North American approach to take the, you know, to take the edge off is just to not wear a tie. You just, you know what I mean? You look like you're wearing a suit without a tie because you still have a, right. you know, you see politicians doing this all the time. You still have a white shirt. Oh, it's awful. Yes, and, and the collar of the mm-hmm. shirt is just hanging open. Clearly, you, you know, it looks like you just took your tie off and then you have a, a dark suit over top. Whereas, you know, understanding that there are ways to, to soften everything, to soften the collar of the shirt, to to the, the silhouette of the jacket, the fabric of the jacket, you know, odd trousers, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these options that are expressed well in other parts of the world. And I think that's kind of one of the problems in North America, that we don't have that middle wardrobe. Um, people can't really can't really picture it. It's, it's an, it's, I've got to say the, 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 the challenge of my book is I don't list any shops, I don't list any brands. So it's really just a beginning to building a wardrobe, like you're going to have to go out there and do the work. And unfortunately in most North American centers, I will acknowledge that's tough to do because um, you know what I mean. I can't just sort of say, "Yeah, go into this shop; everything in there is going to be great." Um, right. You're going to have to do the work.
0: Yeah, there's not the there's not the clothing infrastructure there was you know half a century ago. I guess where right. uh, any any town in the U.S. and I assume in Canada would have had a couple of good solid men shops that you could go to and and you could rely on on people to give you some guidance. And I, I actually want to talk to you a little bit about, about that idea, Mm -hmm. um, as we, as we go along. But I think that, that middle wardrobe you talk, you're talking about and that, you know, day to day is kind of where I like to live myself because I don't have occasion to wear a tie and jacket every day. There would be no, Mm -hmm. no point in me doing that. Um,
1: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll challenge you on that (laughs) because, you know, many times during the winter I have put on a tie and jacket when I'm going to spend all day at home. And the reason I do it is because they're beautiful and, you know, they, they feel and look great. Now, you know, yes, if it's a day where I'm going to be walking the dog and, you know, you know, hooking up the rain barrels or something like that, no, I'm not going to do it. But uh, if I'm going to be at my desk working for the day, Remotely, obviously. Um, then I have done it, and you know it feels great. I I will admit, I will admit, there was a point earlier on in the winter where I went to put on a tie, and I was like, "Wait a second, how do I tie this again?" <laughs> it took me <laughs> because it had been a few months. You know what I mean? It had been a few months. You, you, lo- you lost the you lost the muscle the muscle memory, memory on it. exactly. But but I will say, you know, I, I will I will I will say that you know if like I have certainly found you know throughout the winter that I have worn. I've actually worn a couple suits, not my formal suits. They're definitely my more casual suits, but, um, yeah, I would say that the occasional moment of just the beauty of the thing and the pleasure of wearing it is why I've done it.
0: Well, sure. And I've, I mean, it's not like I have any, any shortage of the stuff. Um, <laughs> I've, I mean, I, I don't know if I'll, you know, most of the ties I have, I'll probably never get to cause I've, I, I've, honestly and this is this is the the woes of a of a uh, of an addicted thrifter like i am right. I've, I've probably purchased more ties in the past year than days i've worn a tie which <laughs> which isn't to say that i've not worn ties it's sure. just to say that i i keep buying things i shouldn't buy which will again uh, something else something else we'll talk about mm-hmm. here but uh but i think that that middle wardrobe though is is a place that It's an easy place for people who maybe don't want to do a tie or don't want uh, a tailored jacket that they could, that they could live in that space and look a thousand times better. And, uh, but like you say, it's, it's difficult to find people, especially, I mean, I would, I don't even know. I can't think of a politician that Mm -hmm. does sort of that nice casual well. Uh, like you said, it's just it's usually they they look like they just took off their tie when there's a reason why why they look like that. Yeah. Um, uh, sort of on the other end of that, you get, um, you know, you sort of you get your Hollywood crowd that wear things that people can't identify with a lot of times. I mean, I i would I would look foolish wearing a lot, you know, trying to dress like a, a Hollywood person, um, a, a, at least a lot of them. And so. It people don't have a reference point in a lot of ways. Exactly, for that, I think.
1: Exactly. Well, and I think what it comes down to is what we value, and in North America especially, we we no longer value the idea of elegance. Um, I think many people would consider the idea of elegance to be maybe elitist, maybe outdated. You know what I mean? Now, now the buzzword, the catchword, is authenticity, right. and they're both constructed. They're both ideas that we have created out of, you know, various, various things. And what I, you know, (laughs) what I, what I wish we could return to is not, not the sense of elegance where it's lorded over people and it's used as a, as a, you know, as a, as an object of, of power or to, to entrench divisions, but as an object, as something of, of, of a way to bring beauty into life um, you know, in a celebration into life.
0: I I think that's right. And, and one of the ironic things about that, of course, is that we live in a time in which it is, it is easier, uh, for anyone who wants to, to, to achieve that level of, of elegance and to present themselves that way. Uh, not that there aren't some barriers to it, but it's, but it's certainly more accessible now. Than it ever has been, right? Um, and yet, at the same time, we have have devalued it um, more than we ever have, and uh, and so th- sort of the people that you in the past you would have looked to who might have sort of set that standard mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. of elegance now seem to rush the other way. And, uh, and sort of actively try to look bad, uh, at least it seems that way a lot of times.
1: Well, yes, and I mean, I think that, again, that comes down to this idea, this idea of authenticity, I think. That I, I still don't understand the logic behind this. For instance, that you know, I might have an outfit, you know, a jacket, shirt, and trousers, where not only is it custom-made, but I selected the fabrics, you know, I, I played a role in the, in the shape and silhouette and finishing, and yet somehow that's not as authentic as the person who goes to the mall and buys, you know, T-shirt and jeans off a peg, that, right. that look. Because again, and I understand, it, it, it relates to, to this concept of egalitarianism that we're trying to promote and have been for 50 years. And again, I understand the historical background, but um, I think it's a shame that we completely threw away in North America um, the other side of it that, again, you still see in other parts of the world a, some kind of a balance. And I th- it's interesting when you mentioned Hollywood stars because what I, you know, there might be a couple who, you know, get dressed nicely for for an event or something, but I, I want to see what they look like in their day-to-day lives. And chances are that that, that approach, you know, the approach that you and I like to, to style and to elegance just isn't there um, because especially, again, like in North America, there aren't those examples and it's not easy, you know, I could count on on one hand the number of shops that I would send somebody to in the States to, to buy clothes that I would consider to be elegant. Right. Right. They are, they
0: are few and far between and seem to be closing mm-hmm. daily mm-hmm. Um, or, or declaring bankruptcy and, and yes. reshuffling their, their focus. You, you talked about, you had an interesting, uh, an interesting, uh, anecdote, uh, in your book where you talk about uh, speaking to this gentleman who had been a clothes salesman back in the fifties and sixties yes, and talking about what, what your average customer knew, because we look at photos from, from those days and everybody seems to look so much better <laughs> than mm-hmm. they look now. Just your, you're sort of your average Joe, yep. we might say yep. seemed to present himself in this sort of, enviable way you see you know all clothing forums where they'll show pictures of these people and why can't we look like that yeah um and so we think well all of these people must have been clothing experts <laughs> um and i think that the that it's always a barrier for people today because they well i don't know how to achieve that i don't know yes i don't know how and how to get that look and you're and your book of course is meant to address that idea but uh, talk a little bit about this—the the, sort of the myth of the well-informed mm-hmm. uh, shopper of of your.
1: Well, the 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 full story, um, the full story. You know, to give more background than what happens in the book, this was a couple years ago. I was in New York and I was at J. Press, and I don't know if you know Jay Walter. He's the I, not personally, but right. I've I've heard yes. Oh, yeah. So so he's he's ninety years old, and um, he was the man who worked at Brooks Brothers for many years. And now, lately, he's been the made-to-measure person at J Press. And so, um, and I recognized him. You know, I've seen interviews uh, online with him and so on and so forth. And um, he's kind of got a classic uh, New York look to him. He just looks just always a little bit angry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so he's sitting at his made-to-measure desk at the back of the shop, and I'm wandering back and forth, and I'm, you know, looking at things and trying to drum up the courage to say something to him. And he looks up at me and says you're not going to buy anything. You're just here to ask a bunch of questions. (laughs) And, you know, so I was like, uh, yeah, you're kind of right. And so I sat down, I introduced myself, you know, and at first he was like, I I, I was working on the Bruce Boyer podcast at the time. And I told him I was doing that. And he said, who wants to listen to that? And I said, well, you know, I, I think he was sort of, you know, testing, maybe testing me and where my background is and my thinking and so on. And so I explained a little bit more of what I do and why I do it. And then he, his tone shifted. And then we had a fantastic hour long conversation about, you know, his time in the industry. And, and he's somebody that I would absolutely love to interview and, you know, to do a sort of a series on, you know, because of all the experiences he's had. But yes, I asked him this question. I said, you know, back when he was working at Brooks and and people were coming in to order suits and so on and so forth, did they know more about clothes than men today? And he said, no, absolutely not. Um, but they had really, you know, really, really good sources to help them. So pretty much any of the major men'swear stores at the time, you know, they weren't, you know, the, the people working there were very, very, very knowledgeable and experienced, and they did sincerely really care about you as an individual, you know, learning and growing and and dressing better, you know, and building a relationship and so on. And that was again eye opening to me. Because yes, I've always assumed that men in the past just knew more and knew, I mean, to a certain degree, you know, they, they were more aware of certain terms and you know what I mean? Because the style was something that, that more men sure. wore. Um, but when it comes down to the specifics of identifying quality and how things should fit and so on and so forth, I think we've always been clueless. Um, but we just had these people who would guide us those people are still there like i think if you go to most of the of the you know the the really high quality menswear stores across the world they are staffed by people who really know their stuff but those stores as you said are very 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 there's very few of them whereas it used to be so much more common so it was you know when i when i look back at those photos and people talk about style icons and how men well how how well men dressed i'm like yeah they they had more chances to do it, you know. Right. It's not like it's not like we as a culture have somehow you know lost the ability to be stylish. Um, we're, we're choosing not to be now, and uh, back then, you know, if you had the the money and the opportunity, you had a lot of options to 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 dress well.
0: Right. You didn't like you were talking earlier, going to the mall and just grabbing something off mm-hmm. the peg. It, pe- people couldn't do that. They couldn't just order something you know, from Amazon, um, and have it show up. And there was, there was in a sense a little bit more of forced interaction with people who knew what they were doing. So there was, um, you, you kind of had, you had to have some involvement and that I think probably led to, to some better outcomes. Uh, <laughs> at least it seems to have.
1: Exactly. I mean, I, I, again, I don't, I, I... It's not that I think the world was a better place it wasn't um, but at least you know that kind of relationship that kind of knowledge um, I think there is there is a lot of value in that and and what I talk about in the book again and again is that fundamentally what I'm trying to do is is help people build a new relationship with their clothes but it's a relationship that people used to have with their clothes right used to have with a lot of things in their lives that we don't now when when things are disposable, and low quality, we don't, we don't keep them for very long. We don't, which means we don't build, we don't build, you know, memories and emotions and stories with them. And that, that means there's something missing from our lives that, that, that could be there. And that, that's, I kind of feel like the, the title of the book, 10 Garments Every Man Should Own is kind of like a way to just get people to open the book. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because what it's actually about, what it's actually about is these, I think these deeper issues of of quality of 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 intention of mindfulness around clothing you're listening to the cultural debris podcast
0: one of the things you you start with or i guess your first chapter is dealing with shoes and i i have felt for a long time that the number one thing the easiest thing um that, that men could do to improve their look in every single respect is to get good shoes. And they are almost impossible to find on anyone's feet. Uh, bad, bad shoes, <laughs> uh, d- dominate everything. And, uh, and you, you have a lot of emphasis on that. And I think rightly so, uh, talk a little bit about, about that, uh, about why shoes matter.
1: Well, I think because, because shoes, I got to say that when I started, um, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, when I started meeting with shoemakers and actually witnessing the process of making a classic leather shoe, I had no idea how much, you know, work and engineering and thought, um, goes into shoe construction. And, and early on, a shoemaker told me, he's like, these things are punished like no other garment has to go through what these do. Like they have to look good and they have to harmonize and so on and so forth, but they're also, you know, crushed and sweated into every single day or every other day as it should be. Um, So that part of it blew me away, but then the realization that, and you have to take care of them. And if you do, it's, it becomes more, like more than any other garment. Like most other garments, they get washed. um, Maybe you brush them. You mend them occasionally, but the fact that a shoe also, you know, beyond all of that, you know, just needs regular maintenance. It needs moisturizing and polishing and brushing and and you know little repairs and and work done to the sole. It's it's kind of it's more like a car or something like that. You know what I mean? Where it's it's <laughs> yeah. it's, it's 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 quite a um, a functional object. And by doing that, like the reason I started the book is because the lessons that you get from it from, from looking after your shoes apply to the rest of your wardrobe. And in many ways apply to other things in your life in terms of, you know, doing, having that, that thought of initially to get something that's actually really, really good quality and fits you well, and then to look after it for many, many years, and then to see it grow and change and evolve as you wear it for years and years and really become a part of you. Like even the way the leather molds to your foot, um, Like, if you know, you've I'm sure you've had this experience where you put on a pair of vintage shoes that belong to somebody else, it feels really weird because, right, you you can kind of feel the other person's foot, you know, at first. Um, not in a gross way, I just mean in sort of in in sure. No, I know what you mean, you know. Um, so that's why I put it there, but also it's the biggest challenge because, you know, a good friend of mine who's not really into, into clothes. You know, he asked me for advice on, on a pair of getting a pair of good leather boots. And it has been a bit of a struggle to convince him of all, he's, he's read my book. He's, he sees the value, but he just can't see himself doing all this. And you know, what I've told him is start small, like there's other things in his life, whether it's, you know, camping or music or whatever, where he makes the effort, but I said, start small, like start with just shoe trees and get shoe trees in your, in your boots. And then you can get a little brush that you keep by the door. And then after the first few months, and you start to see the boots are looking a little bit, a little bit worn, then we can start talking about just a moisturizer and, you know, slowly ramp up. Like I, I, you know, I do think that for some people, they think it has to be everything. You know what I mean? You have to go full in with everything I talk about in the book. And it's a lot like the maintenance chapter, which is probably the biggest chapter in the book. There's a lot in there, but I didn't, I certainly didn't one day immediately start doing all of this at once. It's, it's a slow process of learning, but again, that's, what's so great about shoes. They give you the opportunity to slowly, you know, build those skills and then see, um, see the impact as, you know, as your shoes. I'll tell you my, um, my, I started applying this uh, process to my wife's shoes. And at first she was kind of upset because she was like, Hey, I was used to my shoes only lasting a little while then getting new shoes. And I kind of, I kind of liked that. And now thanks to you, my shoes are lasting for years, but now she's gone to the other side and now she's like, oh, I, I love these shoes. Like they are so well molded to my feet. And now they've, you know, they've gained a a patina and and a richness to the leather. Now it's like, oh, okay, this is a different kind of enjoyment. You know what I mean? Not the enjoyment of something brand new, but the enjoyment of something that's aged really well. Right.
0: I I think, uh, I think we can, we can easily see how women's shoes particularly are, are really designed with a, with a disposable mindset, uh, regardless of how expensive they are. Usually that the, the assumption is uh, you're not going to wear these that long. And, uh, and I think that that they um women have have largely gotten used to that but it doesn't it doesn't have to be that way that's not to say you can't buy shoes if you want to but Mm -hmm. um but i but as you point out there it it hasn't always been that way certainly and and it doesn't have to be that way and i think you can even with a with a woman's shoe wardrobe you could have a mixture of shoes you want to keep and you know Mm. shoes that that come and go Uh, i think um I think that would be probably a good balance. But one of the things that you focus on here with is kind of a I, I don't think you use this term, but kind of a capsule wardrobe mindset, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, and that to some degree takes away maybe the issues with too much. Uh, worrying too much about maintenance—you don't have to have so much that you can't really take care of it if you don't want to.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I um. And and the other thing is that I find as certain items get older, they need less maintenance. Um, certainly, some of them, you know, wear down. Um, but shoes, for instance as my shoes get older, they don't, it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like it It feels like the, the leather grows more robust somehow and sure. they don't need that, that constant treatment. And, um, you know, by having, by having just a few sweaters, for instance, um, there isn't, yeah, there isn't as much, there isn't as much to pack and unpack and so on and so forth. But that's again, another issue with the modern age is that things are so cheap and they are so available and, you know, my my house um, my house is about 110 years old, and it has very small closets. And I remember for the first little while just being, like, frustrated. <laughs> well, you know, there just wasn't any space to put anything. And then I realized, right. well, yeah, because when this house was built, people didn't have that much stuff. And somehow they right. survived. Well, mostly survived. I mean, there was a lot of, <laughs> sure. you know, septicemia yeah. and tuberculosis and so on and so, so forth. But... What I mean is that, you know, we can live with less stuff. And so instead of building more closets, you know, instead of finding other ways to store stuff, we've decided, my wife and I have decided, no, we're just going to have to live with this amount of space, which means, you know, less stuff, which always, always, always ends up, I think, being better, better for you, better for your, you know, mental state, (laughs) better for the environment, better for your budget, um, just having less stuff. No,
0: I think that's probably right. Uh, as as I alluded to earlier, I've I've sort of had this long term um, uh, hobby of thrifting, which I just like doing. It it's fun to do, uh, but it it also uh, can can feed kind of a maximalist approach mm-hmm. because because over time, I mean, you can go thrifting a lot and and come away with nothing, but if you do it for fifteen years, uh, oh boy. <laughs> it, it tends, yeah, it tends to build up yeah. and, uh, and, and, that's with being hyper selective and, you know, you, you come across things like I mentioned earlier with ties. I mean, the last thing in the world I need is another tie. Um, <laughs> but if, but if I'm out and I come across, you know, is well, it's a really nice tie and it's in great shape and it's, you know, a buck 50. Why, <laughs>
1: right. why would I,
0: you know, this is a $200 tie maybe. Why mm-hmm. would I leave this
1: here? Well, and, and so think, I'll
0: so I'll tote it home. So
1: yeah, and I, and I think you know ties don't take up very much space.
0: And, it depends on how many you have, but well,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, another great story that Bruce Boyer always tells me. He has, he thinks maybe upwards of a thousand ties, and he well, can, that makes me feel pretty good. Yeah, exactly. You haven't gone over the, uh, <laughs> but he, he I, I think I'm under that. He remembers every single one. Like, he could list off every single one of them to you, Um, you know, at the drop of a hat. And, you know, I personally, that's where I think it's kind of what's happening to ties is interesting. As you saw, ties are barely mentioned in my book. And um, I realize now that it would have been, would have made sense for me to have a chapter about accessories, sort of a little, you know, an appendix at the end about, you know, different kinds of accessories that I would recommend, maybe in the next version. I'll do yeah, that. Ten, ten garments Termits. more. Plus, ten, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, spats, spats, and monocles. Um, <laughs> right. But the thing with ties is that you know people are again lamenting how ties are disappearing from our culture, and I actually have no problem with what's happening because the ties that are disappearing are ugly ties. From you right, know,
0: there are a lot of really bad ties out. Oh there. yeah,
1: and and business, I call them business ties or wedding ties. You know, they they have a shine to them. They have
0: Oh, the sort of a satiny kind satiny of satiny finish. Oh uh, yeah, those are awful. An
1: enormous amount of structure. Um and you know, colors that are usually quite bold and and garish. I don't think there's ever been a better time to buy ties, quality ties than today. The tie makers that, that are out there in the States, in Italy, in England are making gorgeous, gorgeous ties. Oh, there's some really nice, yeah. fabric. You know.
0: That, that's why so I, I think for to the turn them the, down a lot of times. yeah,
1: exactly. So for the person who does love them, um, you know, it's it's wonderful. Like it's again, it's the best time. and and I guess I would rather have fewer men wearing beautiful ties than a lot of men wearing ugly ties, even if it means you know the tie is sort of slipping slipping away. but then it becomes it becomes a different element instead of something that you know has to be worn. It's something that people are wearing, that men are wearing to express, you know, color or joy or whatever. And I think that's wonderful.
0: I will say this. You, you did, you do, you do talk about ties in one aspect, which is how to tie them or the, ah, or yes. the correct knot to use. And, and I, I have to tell people that, that this is, um, this is a, a certainly a, a sign of acceptability for your book because you, you give the right advice in this. And I'm a, I'm a big partisan of tie knots, <laughs> right. which is uh, that that the only tie knot you need other than than being able to tie a bow tie, which you should be able to do. but right. for for the for the typical what we'll call a long tie, the only knot you need is a four in hand. Mm-hmm. That, that's really the only the only knot you should ever use.
1: yes, I completely agree. I, I think that when I started tying ties, um like I was taught by my dad and and he taught me a half Windsor, which is what he had learned as a kid. And he probably learned it because at the time, you know, in the fifties, early sixties, ties were very, very, very thin. Mm-hmm. So you needed a bit of a, you needed some way to bulk up the knot. Right. And, you know, and then there's the whole misunderstanding of the Duke of Windsor and and the kind of knot, you know, that he, right. he used the in hand. He just had very heavily, um, heavily interlined ties that made the knot look bigger. So I, Again, it it speaks to the North American um, lack of understanding of formality and casualness. That you know, when I talk to people about casual ties, they're like, "What? Like it just sounds like <laughs> sounds like an oxymoron." But
0: I don't I'm, know what you're talking about. But I'm like, yeah, if you if you
1: have a tie, like an unlined tie, with a, a you know, a, like a wool chalice, like a matte finished tie, maybe it's got an open weave. And it just sort of floats on on your neck, as opposed to being stiff and tight. That to me is a casual tie. That's a tie that suggests, yeah, you know, I'm dressed, you know, I'm dressed up, but I'm not formal. Um, and and it, for me, it, it evokes sort of the history of the tie, which is just a beautiful piece of fabric tied at the neck. Right. Um, that's what I would I would love to see. That's what I would love to see more of. And and so the knot. That always signifies it for me, is that when I see a double Windsor, um, now there's some there's again, it's not hard and fast, right? Like there are people who will do it and they'll sure. do it and they'll do it well and they'll own it and, and so on and so forth. But that's not usually what I see. What I usually see are people who are doing it because that's just what they think is done, right? Right.
0: Well, th- there's this there's this misnomer that that the half Windsor or Windsor are sort of, this, these are sort of like stages of formality. I'm going to be right. super, I'm, I'm going to be super dressed up. So I'm going, you know, the full Windsor today. Yeah. And, and yet if you look at the, any of the, the best dressed men in the world, they all, no matter how quote unquote dressed up they are, they're wearing a four in hand. And that's what yeah. they're using.
1: Yes. And I think again, what we've lost over the last, you know, 40, 50 years has been that nuance and subtlety of style. Things like, you know, a little bit of wrinkle, a little bit of rumple, um, a little bit of asymmetry, which is actually much more stylish than, than everything being absolutely perfect and pristine. And, um, and, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's a shame that as it has slipped as formal dressing and and tailor dressing has slipped from the mainstream, we've lost that. And I kind of feel like that would actually be the best way for it to stay, to remain, is if people were a little bit more relaxed with it on a day-to-day basis, um, it, you know, it wouldn't seem so out of place. Again, like I said, like in other cultures, in other in other parts of the world.
0: Well, I I did appreciate uh, the quote you had from Luciana Barbara about uh, being able to to own as many shirts as I want, and so that's <laughs> sort of um, I, I've I've applied that. My the 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 real problem is I've applied that to things like uh, outerwear a lot of times, and that's that can be uh, that can be a a storage issue. You were alluding to storage right. problems before, so yeah. um, thankfully I have a I have a house with a basement, so that uh, that gives me a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> gives me a little bit of of overflow capacity there. Right. Well, I, I want to shift gears just a little bit mm. uh, before before you go to talk to you about your your project that you did with Bruce Boyer. a couple of years ago, uh, Bruce Boyer, of course, for those who may not know is, is one of the greatest menswear writers, uh, well, really greatest of all time, one of the greatest of all time. And, and for some of us, uh, certainly, uh, our very favorite. And I would say that for, for myself and, uh, and you had an opportunity to do a, um, a multi-part, uh, interview series with him that's Mm -hmm. available via podcast. It's called unbuttoned with, uh, with Bruce Boyer and I would recommend anybody go listen to that. How um, how did you originally get to know Bruce Boyer?
1: Well, actually, uh, yeah, it started. Um, our connection started. This is going back maybe six, six, seven years ago. I real I was reading um, one of his first books that he wrote, Elegance. Um, I was reading the book and I realized that we were approaching the thirtieth anniversary of the publication of the book. And so I wanted to do an article. I wanted to write an, I was writing articles for various magazines. I wanted to do an article about the 30th anniversary and Bruce's thoughts on what's changed and what hasn't. Because as I read Elegance, I kept thinking, oh my God, I so wish this world still existed. I so wish you could walk into, <laughs> you know, you could walk into Brooks Brothers, L.L. Bean and get these things that he's talking about or all the other stores that he mentioned that don't exist anymore. Um, but even the way he talked about, for instance, in that book, and this is in the mid eighties, how, you know, the the culture of wear whatever you want had come to an end and formality was coming back and classic mm. was coming back. And I was like, oh, I'm so sad <laughs> but that it just didn't last. You know, it was destroyed by the nineties. Um, but I wanted to, to. so what I did is I, I searched him up and, and he's not anywhere on the line. And through my sleuthing, um, I found his address, his home address, so I wrote him a letter. And, you know, included my email and then, you know, a few weeks later I got an email back from him saying, you know, thanks so much for reaching out, you know, what do you want to know? And so we did a, an email interview, um, about his book and, uh, that was just fascinating and, and, and it's on my blog. If you go to the Hogtown Rake and search for Bruce Boyer, you'll find that very first interview I did with him years and years ago. And, and I'll put a link to that oh, in the show notes that people can check out. Thank you, thank you. And then, you know, I had an opportunity. I was working with a menswear store in Toronto when he launched his book True Style about five years ago. Um, and we flew him up to Toronto to have a book launch here, and that's where I actually got to meet him in person, and we became fast friends, and essentially have been talking on the phone, you know, regularly ever since. And um, you know, at a certain point a couple of years ago, he was saying, you know, we should work on a project together, and I couldn't believe. I could I couldn't I couldn't you know, this this person who I had, you know, uh, just adored from afar and was so inspired by his writing and his approach to clothes and 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 everything. And you know, here we are not only becoming friends, but he's, you know, let's let's work on a project together. because of my history in radio and podcasting, you know, immediately that's what I that's where I went. my mind went to it. And the thought that I had is that even though Bruce has been writing about men'swear for fifty years, I think he's of a generation and he's told me this that he doesn't talk about himself. Like he he tells me that one of his first editors at town and country said, the one word I don't want to see in any of your articles is I, no one cares. No one cares what you think.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: which again, you know, this is, this is journalism, you know, journalism in the seventies and eighties and so on and so forth was, was not personal. And so he, he rarely ever told his personal stories and, um, And, and so, you know, I floated this idea, I said, well, what if, you know, we took the listener through your life and you actually told me, you know, not, not necessarily, you know, why a certain kind of trench coat is better than another trench coat. Like, you know, you've done that in your books, but what it was, what was it like to visit Savile Row in the sixties? You know, and what was, what was it like the very first time you went to Italy and, um, and all these experiences that he's had. And, you know, some of them were stories that he'd already told me, um, but I realized no one's ever really heard these. And he's such a great storyteller. And it's great. so great to listen to him tell the story. Like all of this, it would be great as a written piece, but being able to hear him tell these stories. And uh, so it was it was a fantastic you know, project that it took a few months. It was, you know, he's down in Pennsylvania. I'm up here in Toronto. It was all this like, you know, technical stuff that we had to work out. But uh, I'm extremely proud of how it turned out. And and to share these stories with people, because it's just it's it's great to listen to and, and so inspiring.
0: Well, the the only problem with it is that there aren't more episodes, but I would uh, I'll also link <laughs> uh, link that for folks. But I it's really it's really great. And for people who who aren't familiar with Boyer, it's a very easy entry uh, into him and his his mindset and the episodes are you know what about 30 minutes or so they're pretty yep, yep. 20 to you know, 30 they're, they're sort of listenable in a in yeah. an easy sitting or walking or working in the yard yeah. or whatever whatever it is i i'll i'll take this opportunity to tell my own boyer story but yes please. not that i not that i know bruce boyer i uh, would love to meet him sometime but uh bruce boyer is the reason why i have any uh, real interest or at least he's the one that sort of got me on the on the road to an interest in menswear i had it but i i didn't grow up with that right you know as 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 something that i knew anything about i didn't have any anybody to teach me that my you know my dad was a was an elementary school principal and he would wear a you know dress, dress shirt sometimes short sleeve and a tie and a tie every right. day you know that right. kind of thing but he wasn't interested in in those things yes. um, But I was an undergraduate uh, in college uh, way back when, and I was at a bookstore uh, here in Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, I was looking at the remainder table and there was a copy of a book called Elegance by Mm -hmm. T. Bruce Boyer, who I'd never heard of. And it was, I don't know, you know, it was on the remainder table. So it was four bucks or something. I don't know. So I, I was, I flipped through it. Um, He was covering topics I wanted to hear about. So I got it. And I never heard of him didn't know anything uh about him and I just devoured the book. I mean it was um it it was just opening an, an in, literally an entire world to me that I um that I didn't even imagine, you know, existed out there. And um when I the this was I guess I would have been a junior in in college then and so the summer between my junior and senior year um I did a summer study abroad in england and so i i packed elegance and took it with me <laughs> Nice, <laughs> and i used it like a travel log nice. going to the and i didn't have the money to um uh, you know to to buy um uh, uh, you know to go to savile rowing anything but you know the but i did i did go there immediately mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh you know I, uh, Jeeves and Hawks, I remember the first thing I, I walked into, uh, walked to Savile Row and Jeeves and Hawks was there and they were having a sale. And I went in and I bought, I think three ties and nice. I still have those ties, yeah. uh, that I, they were, and, and I bought them cause they were on sale. And so I, but, uh, went to, you know, Smith and Sons and bought an umbrella. And so there were the, some of these small things that were at the time things I could talk myself into getting even though there were you know you know i have to pay how much for an umbrella yeah exactly i'll I'll try to do this but but that book which i still have and uh it was just really uh the book that that set me on the course and when when i got back i started writing because he has that list of catalog companies yes this is pre-internet i didn't i i didn't even have an email address back then um he had this, all these, this list of companies of mail order companies. And so I just started writing letters to all these places and saying, Hey, can you send me your catalog? And, you know, right. so that's where I ordered my first Brooks Brothers shirts because there was no Brooks Brothers here and, uh, got my first button downs and so forth. And so, um, ever since then, Bruce Boyer has been sort of, uh, sort of the, the guy I've turned to for mm-hmm. advice and, and, um, uh, you know, I think Probably he looks more stylish now than ever from the photos I see. And if there's anybody that I could dress and look like, it would be, it would be Bruce Boyer because he's just always impeccable. Exactly.
1: I I, I just uh, just was interviewed a couple of days ago for for uh, a website, and you know, was asked about you know my inspiration or or whatever, and it, it always goes back to Bruce. I always when so when we um, when we met up in New York a couple of years ago. To record an episode of Unbuttoned because I happened to be there for for my job and so I thought, well, let's let's get together and actually record in person. Um, I showed up. Bruce was wearing um, <clears throat> like a sort of a, a mid brown sport jacket, blue shirt, um, gray flannel trousers with with turnups, and um, brown split toe derbies. As was I. <laughs> I mean, I I had a different color tie. And I had a different color socks, but without even thinking, because, you know, I had packed my clothes in advance for the trip and I didn't know what I was going to wear each day. And I, I put this stuff on, um, because it was kind of a cooler day in New York. And then I, you know, we were actually also wearing sort of floppy, light Brown, tan Brown fedoras. (laughs) I I think if somebody saw us, they would have been like, Oh, look at that. Look at that family. Isn't that adorable? (laughs) Um, and, and, but yeah, it was like, yep, I a hundred percent, um, you know, it's, and, and the thing with Bruce is that it's not, it can sound like, like a uniform for instance, right? That it's, you know, this and this and this, but it's, it's a mentality. That's really what it comes down to. And once you have, you know, the, the, the basic elements, um, that all work with each other, then when you put them together, you know, they look a certain way. And for me, it's, 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 you know, the, the approach that Bruce takes, you know, his eye for how he uses color. Um, that's the stuff that I find so inspiring. And, you know, I try to do it, you know, obviously in my own way, but I'm not going to pretend that, yeah, I'm not influenced by other people and I don't see something and say, yeah, I'd like to give that a try.
0: Well, I, I would 100% tell people if, if you want kind of a masterclass on, on how to dress is just Google image search Bruce Boyer and look at Bruce Boyer photos. I mean, uh, sort of that uh, casual dress up that you were talking Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. earlier is he's perfected that. And uh, he just uh, he always looks great and stylish, yet he always looks like he's completely comfortable. There's no stiffness about about it at all. And that's really. That's really the goal yeah. that you're trying to get to, that you feel as comfortable in that, and that you've chosen clothes that let you feel as comfortable in that as you would wearing a, a cardigan and uh, and, you know, something softer
1: exactly. he He expresses something that I think is a, is a shame that it's been lost, which is really the American approach to style. Um, years ago, when again, when I was working at that men'swear store, Hugo Jacomet. Came over, um, and for people who may not know, he is a French menswear writer who's written a number of books, and his um, his blog, The Parisian Gentleman, is um, you know quite popular. Anyway, so he was he was doing he was doing a a book launch for his book, The Parisian Gentleman, and um, he was also launching. He had actually just launched The Italian Gentleman, and he was telling telling us all about about this, and he was joking that the publisher had said, "Well, your next one should be called The American Gentleman." <laughs> and and Hugo said, "Is there even such a thing?" And you know he's being a little bit tongue in cheek, but at that a mo- little bit. Uh, but and at that <laughs> moment, I was like, "This is such a shame because I I personally believe that a lot of that Italian nonchalance came from American Ivy League."
0: That's and, right. You know? I think you're right about that.
1: And and it's been lost. And it's it's a real shame that. There this, I mean, it still exists in small pockets throughout the United States. Um, but this idea that, you know, you have your own homegrown approach that mixes casual and formal and um, you know, understated and and you know, unstructured and all that sort of stuff, like it's actually there in your history, but so few people know about it.
0: Right. I mean, you you take you take the American Ivy look and the Italians and the Japanese mm-hmm. rated it yeah. and adopted it yeah. and then perfected it and we abandoned it yes. and uh and they continually look wonderful wearing yeah. it <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and 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 then and we don't and um and and it can become and I know there's all sorts of various wars over prep and ivy and so forth and that's but but there are there are just simply classic american elements there that that uh we developed in really the post-war period mm-hmm. uh, that it's a shame that we've, uh, that we've ever stepped away from. And, and I, I'm, I'm a bit of a sort of that, that Ivy trad look is sort of what I tend to drift toward with a dash of Anglophilia. Yes. Thrown in. Yes. But, yes. Uh, but I, I'm, I, it's, it's, it's a look that's hard to get away from and not, you know, I'm not interested in getting away from it because it, it's always classic. And, and the Italians have seen that, the Japanese Mm -hmm. have seen that and they've, um, and and they've embraced it fully.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, And I, you know, I hope that it can, it can, I mean, it is always sort of making a little bit of a trendy comeback, like right now with rowing blazers and a few other companies, you know, some elements of it, but I think the, the, What really needs to come back is the, is the fundamental approach and the thinking about clothes and style, not just, you know what I mean? Not just a rugby sweater, but how do you, how do you wear, you know, formal things in an informal way? And how do you, you know, soften, you know, traditionally formal, formal garments, that kind of thinking, how you combine them. That's what I really wish would come back.
0: Right. And. And your book, Ten Garments Every Man Should Own, is a, is a uh, is a good starting point for folks that I will send them to. Is this? Uh, I know it's published in Canada. Is mm-hmm. it readily available in the U.S.?
1: Oh yes, absolutely. Um, I can see that most of the major online sellers and booksellers have it, and it is available to order. And in fact, I've I've seen people ordering it all over the world. So That's very good. Yeah, even though even though it is only technically published here. Uh, Thanks to certain, you know, online distributors, uh, it can be purchased pretty much anywhere.
0: Well, I am always uh, eager to push people towards classic style. And I I think that your book provides a nice entry point because it can be overwhelming um, and uh, people can become intimidated by it. But what what as you talked about with uh, with even men in the past, everybody needs a guide to kind of get them there. Mm-hmm. And and uh, this in this day and age, it's rare that we'll be able just to go to our our local store and get the advice that we might want. But uh, we can rely on on books such as this. So I appreciate you writing it and for being on Cultural Debris.
1: I I really 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 appreciate you know the time and uh, the fantastic conversation and and for you know for telling people about it. I really really appreciate it. Well, thanks for being along. Thank you, Alan.